Well, the book of Judges actually, or the book of First Samuel actually opens um, in a really dark place. It's a place of political unrest. They are threatened. The Israelites are threatened from, by the Canaanites from the outside, and internally they are threatened by moral disintegration and chaos. See, the book of Judges begins where, or the book of Samuel begins where the book of Judges ends. And if you know anything about the book of Judges, you will know something about the darkness of that time. See, the last line in the book of Judges is this. In those days, Israel had no king, and all the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. In those days, there was no king, and all the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. You see, Israel, much like, much like America, lacked leadership. And was in the midst of moral chaos where everyone did what was right in their own eyes. But the book doesn't start, the book of 1 Samuel doesn't start on the grand political scale of national leaders. It starts by focusing in on one family and their personal struggles. The book opens in verses 1 and 2 by introducing us to a man named Elkanah. And it says that Elkanah had two wives. Now you need to know that in the Bible, that scenario we are told very clearly and shown very clearly never goes well. And this is not an exception. See, one of his wives, her name was Penina, and Penina the text tells us has had multiple children, verse 4, sons and daughters. But his other wife, Hannah, had no children. Infertility is not something that we talk about a lot in our society. It's something that is very silent. But it's something that is throughout the Bible. And it's actually something that is throughout our society and our congregation. The reality is, is that one in six couples of childbearing age struggle with infertility. I can attest to that. Those numbers increase to one in three when you're over 35. Those are the physiological causes of couples. That's not even to talk about the sociological causes of all those out there who would like to be married and have children. But for whatever reason, it just hasn't come about. And it's not like global pandemics help with the prospects. And so it's all around. And the pain is real. I know the pain is real. You're reminded of it, some of you, every 28 days. You're reminded of it every time the date what doesn't work out. And you're reminded of it when you hear of your friends' announcements about their kids. Or when you hear them complain about having sleepless nights or having to watch them. And you just wish that you could have a sleepless night where you took care of a kid. I had a friend who at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, he's... He's older. He's he's a he's more of an acquaintance. He's he's older. He's never been married, and um, 
He said, I just don't understand why people are complaining with having to be home with their kids. You know, he would, he would do anything to have a kid. The pain is real. And Hannah knows this pain. If infertility weren't a big enough pain on its own, Penina, who verse 6 calls her rival, added insult to injury. Verse 7 says that Penina would provoke Hannah grievously and irritate her when they went up to the temple to worship. Now, we're not exactly sure what Penina said, but we know that we know that those wounds would have stuck. In fact, the word that's used there for irritate is the word to thunder. A storm was raging in Hannah's heart. And just one time would have been enough to leave a wound that would have lasted for a lifetime. But note that the text says that this happened, verse 7, year after year. Year after year. We're not sure exactly what Panana said, but we know, I think we can be pretty sure of what Hannah heard. What she heard was, you're worthless. No, we know that. Look at verse 16 when she's talking to Eli the priest. He says, do not regard your servant as worthless. Now, who says that? Who says, do not regard your servant as worthless, except someone who thinks that they're probably worthless and is tempted with those thoughts. And in a society, especially that society where one's worth and one's value as a woman was taken up with their ability to have kids and the fact that Hannah couldn't have any. Well, it's not that, it's not that her husband, Elkanah, didn't try to help. He loved her. The text tells us that he loved her. He loved her greatly, verse 5. And he gave her a double portion. When they'd go up to the temple. But it didn't seem to change anything. No, Hannah was so sad, verse 7, that she would not eat. She just grieved. I wonder if you can relate to Hannah. Maybe some of you can relate to her. In a very direct way, because you know the burden of infertility or the desire to have children, and for whatever reason you can't. Maybe some of you can relate to her in the sense that you know what it's like to feel like your life is fruitless. Maybe your work is fruitless. Maybe your relationships aren't going anywhere. Maybe all that you've poured into the various callings that you have seem to be seem to be for naught. Or maybe you know what it's like to, to have society place value on something and, and and you feel like you are less valued and you are less valuable in society because they don't value what you bring. Maybe it's that you didn't go to college and, and you feel like because of that you're not as worthy. Maybe it's that you don't have the right kind of job. Maybe it's that you aren't married. 
Can you relate to Hannah? Can you relate to Hannah? Do you know what it's like to be provoked by an antagonist? Whether that's a bully at school or being belittled in the workplace. Can you relate to Hannah? You know what I think made it worse for Hannah? No one seemed to understand. Her husband, he didn't really understand. And this person that's supposed to be in her corner, and I know he tried, but look, verse 8, he says, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? He's saying, Hannah, why is my love for you not enough? But he just didn't get it. And I'm sure that drew more distance between them. But it's not just that it's not just that her husband doesn't understand. Her pastor doesn't understand either. In verses 9 through 18, there's this scene where Hannah leaves the feast and she goes outside the temple and there she is praying. And as she is praying, she's, she's so taken up with grief and emotion. Maybe you've been in this place where she, she is so emotional and so overcome that she is screaming. But while she is screaming, nothing comes out of her mouth. It's silent. It's wordless. Do you know what that's like? And as she's there, Eli the priest... Her pastor comes up and he mistakes her for being drunk. He says, verse 14, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. It's not the first time and it certainly has not been the last time that an unsympathetic pastor misdiagnoses a problem and gives an insensitive response. Guilty as charged. But it doesn't help when no one understands you. And yet somehow, Hannah comes out of it. Because in verse 18, it says that her face was no longer sad. And by chapter 2, her mourning turns to singing and rejoicing. So what happened? Well, what happened is that Hannah prayed. Verse 10 says that Hannah prayed to the Lord. And her prayer is emotional. Verse 16 says that she was speaking out of great anxiety and vexation. Her prayer is honest. Verse 15 says that she's pouring out her soul to the Lord. And in fact, in verse 11, she tells God what she wants. She tells him her desires. Look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and do not forget your servant. But give to your servant a son. I wonder if you have been so bold as to say, God, this is what I want. I wonder if you've been able to be honest enough with yourself to know what you want. What do you want? She's honest with herself and she's honest with God, but she is also, this prayer, it is humble. Three times in verse 11, she calls herself God's servant. See, while Hannah brings all her emotions and is honest before God, she never once forgets who she is talking to. 
the king of the universe. Do you want to know how the dark cloud is lifted? It's lifted when you take your emotions and your deepest hurts and your longings and you humbly pour them out before your maker. Before your God. Have you done that? Can you do that? Well, it sounds easy, right? If it were easy, more of us would do it. No, I don't think it's easy. In fact, it requires a settled choice. Notice in verse 9, we read that Hannah rose. She didn't have to rise, but she rises. You know, I'm sure it would have been much easier to wallow in her pain. I'm sure it would have been much easier to pull the covers up over her head, and especially not to approach the God who at least twice in the text says, closed her womb. And yet, she approaches God. She doesn't sit in anguish, but she rises in prayer. She isn't carried away with her emotions, but she carries her emotions to God. I wonder if some of you, like me, have been caught in a slump. Have you ever been caught in a slump in life? And you feel like you have just gotten in this swirl of negativity. Maybe even a victim mentality. And it's paralyzed you. I mean, I have been experiencing this week, uh, this recently, just because I've been, uh, I had a, uh, an injury in the summer and it's prolonged for so long. And there have been days where I've just fought this sense of like, why not just give up because I have to keep on doing this physical therapy and all these other things and I can't get any work done or anything done. And then I just get in the swirl of negativity, you know, next thing you know, it's like, and now I'm getting fat and I turned 40 and life is over. You know what I'm talking about? I had a button pop off on my, on my pants yesterday. So like, this is for real, y'all. But we get in this swirl of negativity and maybe some legitimately bad things have happened to you. And maybe you have legitimate suffering, but the swirl of negativity doesn't help. What does it mean to stand up, to get up, to rise? One of the things that it's meant for me is because during this time, and I've noticed that like my prayer life suffered. And so I started to reflect back on times in which my prayer life was thriving. And I, as I reflected back on that, I noticed something. In those times in my life where my prayer life thrived, I wrote out my prayers. I journaled. And so I started journaling my prayers and writing down every word. Because I realized that for me, that's what it meant to get up. To not wallow. Hannah gets up, but listen, it does not happen overnight. Verse 12 tells us that she continued praying before the Lord. That means that she had been praying and she was continuing to pray. That this didn't just change in an instant or a moment. It can take days, it can take weeks, it can take months, it can take years. You say, Kyle, how long do I have to do it for? Well, this is how long. You have to do it until you get the blessing. You have to wrestle with God until you get the blessing. 
Hannah prays until she hears Eli say, verse 17, Go in peace. The God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And then, only then, verse 18, Hannah went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. She wrestles with God until she gets the blessing. And then her face is no longer sad. You say, well, Kyle, I could do that too. If I knew I was going to get what Hannah got, I mean, she was, she got what she wanted. She got what she wanted. She got her child. Did she? Notice her prayer. In her prayer, she vows a vow, verse 11. O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look upon the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. Now I know what it sounds like. It sounds like Hannah's making a deal with God, doesn't it? It sounds like she's saying, God, if you give me a son, then I will do this for you, right? Hannah sounds like she's doing what I did many times growing up, and that was this. Um, God, if you will if you will just, you know, uh, if, if, if the cop who's coming up to the car right now will not write me a ticket, I promise, you know, I'll, I'll go to youth group this week. God, if, uh, God, if you, you know, if you just... If you just don't let my parents find out about this movie that I went to, then I promise I'll serve you all my days. I did that a lot as a kid, and that's how I ended up a pastor, maybe. I'm not sure. (laughs) Is that what Hannah's doing? Is she making a deal with God? I don't think so. Because I want you to notice that we have to understand what she says. This peculiar language that no razor shall touch his head and stuff, what is that about? Well, what she's talking about is a Nazarite vow. You see, back in, uh, back in the biblical world, there was one way to be a priest, and that is you had to be a Levite. But if you weren't a Levite, you could actually serve with the priest. And the way that you did that is that a child was dedicated to the Lord, by the way, if you want to do baby dedication, this is this is the biblical baby dedication. So this is where your kid's going to end up. You would dedicate a kid to the Lord, and that meant that you bring him to the temple service, and he worked for the priest all the days of his life. So if you would like to dedicate your children, I am happy to take them into my service. That's a baby dedication. And what happened is Hannah is dedicating her baby to the Lord. In other words, what she's saying is God... This child I'm going to give to you, and he will serve Eli all the days of his life. And she did. She weaned the child. She cared for the child. She fed the child for three years. But after she had weaned him, verses 24 through 28 tells us that she brought the child to Eli. So did Hannah get her child? Yes. Yes. She got her child, and then she gave him up for adoption into the priesthood. Well, 
What breaks Hannah's sadness, what brings her joy, was not having a child. Please notice, please notice that the sadness breaks in verse 18. That she gets up and worships in verse 19. And that she doesn't conceive until verse 20. You see, long before anything in her situation had changed, she got up and she worshipped and the sadness broke. So what was it? Well, Hannah isn't bargaining, as I heard one pastor say. She is not bargaining with God. She is surrendering. See, all her life, Hannah had longed for a son for her. And now she longs for a son for God. Hannah's greatest desire is no longer for Hannah. It's no longer for Hannah to be happy. It's no longer for Hannah to flourish. It's no longer for Hannah to get what she wants. Her greatest desire is to see God glorified. See, what brings Hannah joy is not the child that God brought, but the God who brought the child. Chapter 2, verses 1, after Hannah gives this child up, she prays and she says, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. See, what is she rejoicing in? Not Samuel, but the Lord. Where does she find her joy? Not Samuel, but the Lord. What Hannah needed most was a new appreciation of who God is. And what has changed is her vision of God. In chapter 2, verse 2, she goes on to say, There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. See, what Hannah needed when she was suffering, and what you and I need is we need a big God. And that's what she got. She got a God, her God, who, verse 5, fills the hungry and gives children to the barren. A God, verse 6, who kills and brings to life, who brings down to Sheol and raises up. A God, verse 7, who makes the poor and makes the rich. He brings low and he exalts. Why? Because, verse 8, the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. He is the ruler. He is the sustainer. He is the controller of everyone and everything. This is Hannah's God. This is who she needed. This is what she got. And we're looking for comfort. But we're not going to be able to find comfort until we have a God that is big enough to comfort us. And that's what Hannah found. She needed a God who is more awesome than the anxiety around us. She needed a God like we need who's more substantial than our suffering. She needed a God whose love is more sure than sin and Satan. And that's what she got. Not an explanation. Not an explanation for why he closed her womb, but an encounter. An encounter with the God who brings life out of death, hope out of despair, and creates ways out of no ways. And this isn't just Hannah's story. Notice that this gives her hope not only for her own life, 
but for Israel as well. See, this is Israel's story. Israel is barren. Israel's in chaos. Israel is being assaulted. Hannah is Israel. And God provides a child for Israel. The judge, the Lord, the judge of the earth, he ends her prayer saying, or her song, he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. See, she knows that God will provide a king in days when Israel had no king. She knows that God will exalt a leader who will lead his people out of moral chaos and despair. Because this God is the God who creates ways out of no ways. And that means that this isn't just Hannah's story and it isn't just Israel's story. It's our story as well because God brought that king. Through a virgin named Mary, who had no prospects of being great. He brought that king through the decaying earth to bring new life and new creation three days later. This is his king for you and for me. Have you had an encounter with him? Well, this encounter, notice, it's for those who are weak and those who are powerless. Hannah says that he lifts up the poor. He exalts the lowly. Verse 8, he raises the poor from the dust and he lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit the seat of honor. Are you needy enough to accept him? Are you poor enough to receive his riches? Blessed are the poor in spirit, Jesus said. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. And so are you weak today? Do you feel powerless? Are you always on the verge of breaking down? Break down before him. Fall into his arms and allow him to lift you up forever and ever. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.